0: I was probably in college before I realized that Randall Jarrell had written any poems other than The Death of the Balter at Gunner. Uh, that's, it's a great poem, it's uh, five lines long and was anthologized uh, very widely. It was a poem uh, I read you know, several times between middle school and high school.
1: And, and so it was, it was really my
0: only uh, reference for him. Um, I, I started to read a little more of his work in college and then even more in graduate school. One of the poems I, I really fell in love with early on was uh, 90 North. Uh, 90 North is a you know a, a mostly I- I- iambic poem in quatrains, pre- pre- pretty much free-ish verse, though it's, the, the, the iambic line comes back uh, persistently, if not always, in pentameter. But uh, so 90 North" is a poem. It's a monologue, like a lot of Jarrell's poems, and also like a lot of his poems, it starts in the voice of a child. And uh, Jonathan Farmer has remarked that a, a, really a, a lot of Jarrell's most touching work is written either in the voice of children or or, or you know about. Children and I would add to that often in the voice of or or with a a a focus on uh, housewives or women without a great deal of power. Uh, So you know I think there's there's a little bit of a vulnerable note there. Um, So ninety North, the boy uh, narrating the poem describes fantasizing as a kid about being at the North Pole and sort of enjoying his his conquest and his heroism, and even sort of finding something almost comforting in its shivery, safe sort of way, Uh, and, and imagining the extreme cold while, of course, being bundled up safely in bed. He begins the poem, at home in my flannel gown, like a bear to its flow, I clambered to bed, up the globe's impossible sides, I sailed all night, till at last with my black beard, my furs and my dogs, I stood, at the Northern Pole. And of, of course, the designation 90 North refers to the North Pole. So that's the first uh, few stanzas. And then there's a break. And in a wonderful turn, the rest of the poem takes place as the same character, now all grown up as a, as a, a man, who has actually grown up to be a polar explorer and is <laughs> has reached the North Pole. And it is a little different than what he (laughs) expected. He says, um, I stand here, the dogs bark, my beard is black, and I stare at the North Pole. And now what? Why go back? Turn as I please, my step is to the south. The world, my world, spins on this final point of cold and wretchedness. All lines, all winds end in this whirlpool I at last discover, and it is meaningless. Uh, so he goes on to kind of reflect on the, the uh, folly of his fantasy as a kid. And then the poem has this wonderful sort of peroration at the end that I really loved. I really fell in love with the end of this poem first. Um, so the, the poem ends uh, with his summary of you know his conclusions as a grown man, having, having lived out his boyhood fantasy and become the What he thought would have been a great, what he thought was going to be a gratifying act of heroism turns out to be a brutal and excruciating and ultimately empty gesture. So he ends the poem. I see at last that all the knowledge I wrung from the darkness, that the darkness flung me, is worthless as ignorance. Nothing comes from nothing, the darkness from the darkness. Pain comes from the darkness, and we call it wisdom. It is pain, and that I thought was just a stirring, gripping, satisfying way to end a poem. It felt, uh, it felt like a you know what maybe also sort of a more existentialist version of if or Invictus. It was it was seemed brutal and cool in a way that. You know, especially in my my early twenties seemed, to, seemed to flatter my sense of, of world weary uh, manliness. So I I retained my uh, fondness for this poem, but it's really been more recently that I've come back to it and begun to see it in a slightly different light. Because of course, Jarrell is in so many of his poems really gentle. I mean, really, his best poems, I think, he's often very gentle. And this is, this seems to be such a tough guy poem. And and it is that, in part, but this question of pain and wisdom really became be, became an, an everyday affair, an everyday concern, <laughs> uh, maybe 18 months ago or, or 15 months ago, whenever it was, that the fucking quarantine started and i began to see wherever i turn a certain kind of article so i pulled up with about 30 seconds of googling a slew of just headlines from uh, a lot of scholarly publications a lot of uh, you know popular periodicals uh, newspapers magazines and 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 you know popular websites i'm just going to rattle off <laughs> The uh, a few of these headlines that have to do with, of course, the global pain we were all experiencing and continue to experience, and the response we got to that from our public intellectuals, from our media, from our public health experts, the response being, of course, aha, you thought it was pain, but really it is wisdom how to make the pandemic work for you so here's just i'm just going to rattle off these headlines that i found really with no effort very quickly uh just this afternoon so from i am not even going to read the names of all the public this is, this first one's from uh, the columbia school of public health but i'm just gonna, i'm just going to go straight through the headlines they're all real headlines so this for the first one 10 lessons from our pandemic year uh, then how to make the most of time spent social distancing Wisdom in the time of COVID-19, the great coronavirus pandemic of 2020, seven critical lessons. Wisdom in the age of the coronavirus pandemic, seven tips for self-improvement and quarantine. Boy, that is, that's a, that, that one's fucking infuriating. And then finally, from, ugh, from surviving to thriving, pandemic wisdom must chart our course. And that is is exactly the kind of headline that sent me back to 90 North because uh, Jarrell refutes that claim. But I I began to read in his refutation something other than just uh, a jutting jaw, other than just a a stiff upper lip and a puffed out chest and uh, a refusal to bend to the elements. I started to read in it a kind of compassion I started to read something gentle in his pretty harsh claim in this poem that is if our suffering should be a source of wisdom then the proper response to it is to improve yourself to grow to learn to gain wisdom whereas if it's just pain then it's not your fault if all you do in response to it is suffer. You know, that what what is implied by all of these horrible fucking headlines is uh, you need to suck it up and make the best of this. And really, ultimately, if you were working a little harder, if you were doing a little better, if you were a slightly more responsible person, you would come out of this even better than you went into it. And so any failure to do that is really not a sign of uh, a cruel intervention from the gods. It's not a sign of chance. It's not a sign of a meaningless and vicious pandemic. It's a sign that your character is weak. And so I started to read in Jarrell's conclusion here, not so much a claim to his own toughness, and ability to withstand grim reality as I did a a reassurance to everybody who is suffering, to everybody who is afflicted that, no, it is not your responsibility to grow from your pain. No, this is not a lesson to learn. No, this is not a source of wisdom. This is just shit luck. So fuck you, Columbia School of Health. Fuck you, CDC and JAMA and Slate and all of the rest of you. Uh, No, this is not an opportunity for growth. This is not an opportunity for self-improvement. Pain comes from the darkness and we call it wisdom. It is pain. Lee Smith and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. since you are listening to the show right now on Apple, Stitcher Spotify or a any number of other podcast providers and distributors, not curiously enough, given today's topic, Pandora, though, maybe at some point, I think you will see. since you're listening to take the opportunity of my spinning through a little introductory, patter to go to whatever service you are listening on and subscribe to the show if you haven't already Uh, and leave a rating, which does help uh, on any of these services, but especially on Apple Podcasts, because, of course, they do bestride our narrow world like a colossus. Or if you're not one for leaving a digital fingerprint, just recommend the show to somebody you think might like it. I will be uh, grateful to you for that. You can reach me. Please do uh, reach out to me with any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests or show topics or poems that uh, you'd like to hear or you think I ought to know about. You can reach me at sleericketts at gmail.com. Thank you so much. The other day, I was talking to my dad about Alain de Botton. He's a British novelist, public intellectual, and uh, sort of a pop philosopher. He's written about a pretty big variety of subjects. We were talking in particular about his book, The Architecture of Happiness, that came up on a recent episode of the show. And I think I'm going to return to, I may may actually do another little bonus episode with my dad at some point on that since he's an architect. But we were talking really more broadly about Debaton because I think we both have enjoyed his writing. He's a very congenial and uh funny, insightful writer, but I think we both get frustrated by him as well. And often I think what we what we found was that his you know on the same topic he could make really provocative and helpful sort of novel observations, and then proceed almost immediately to arrive at a really dull, backwards, myopic conclusion about the same topic. Uh, and, And what I think this sort of, what we began to, it began to seem, I think, as if really his problem was that he he did just fine when he stuck to description, but he he got into trouble as soon as he ventured into the arena of prescription. That is, as soon as he started to use the word should. And I don't think uh, de Beton is at all alone in this problem and this, this uh, shortcoming. I think that a lot of really smart writers go wrong when they try to prescribe a solution i think it's it's partly because of the it's it's partly because their description is so good right if your description of the world is not particularly apt then your prescription for it is not going to be particularly offensive but if you describe the world well then unless you happen to be the one who holds Uh, you know, all the answers, your prescription is probably going to do one of three things. It's either going to repeat conventional wisdom as if it were some exciting new discovery and at the same time pretend that uh, it is in fact much easier to apply than it actually is. Or two, you're going to replace the actual problem with a made up problem that's much easier to solve. Uh, or you're going to three. You're going to replace the actual world with a made-up world in which it's much easier to solve the actual problem than it is in our world, right? You're going to distort uh, one or another element that you just that you just described and conveyed so accurately a moment before. There's going to be a a kind of a bad faith or a, a sleight of hand. And I think that's that's certainly what happens with debutant. I think it happens with a lot of us. You know, this, this um, came up two episodes ago, I think in my conversation with Austin, we, we sort of followed a different path, but he mentioned having a student who questioned the tendency in a lot of the, the stories or poems they were studying in class, the tendency to leave things unresolved. Uh, she was an engineer or an engineering student. And so did, you know, her question, which was, it was, which was quite an astute question to Austin, as he said, was what's the point of leaving things unresolved? And Austin's initial response to that, which is a pretty smart one, uh, was "You know, sometimes it's more interesting to leave things unresolved. Sometimes there are other sort of other possibilities that emerge when you leave things unresolved. And that's true, and that is a good answer. I I do think though that there's another answer that is maybe even closer to the heart of the matter, which is that things are unresolved, right? And, And representing, in order to represent them as if they were resolved, you would have to distort them. Uh, furthermore, even if there were some resolution, even if there were a, a way to solve the problem that one has done you know, worked so hard to <laughs> accurately describe, uh, you know, most of us don't know what that solution is. So when you have conversations with writers about whether or not you should uh, instruct your reader, you know, the, the question that should come first is, well, do you know enough to instruct your reader? You know, I, I've never liked didactic stories. Uh, I think most of us really, if we're honest with ourselves, lose our appetite for that stuff way back early in elementary school, if not before. They're just not very fun. But beyond that, I've never felt comfortable teaching a lesson in stories or poems or, uh, or plays because I don't know what that lesson would be. I don't have the answer to offer. And all of this got me thinking about how and why this distortion emerges. And I think it it tends to be because of one or another species of hope. That is, we see the way the world is but we hope that something will give. That something will be easier than it appears. That uh, that something will will turn out not really to be the case. We hope we will turn out to be different than we appear. Uh, and and hope is you know as as people have been very fond of insisting over the last year and a half. Hope is essential. We cannot live without hope. Uh, but. I, I have also come to suspect that hope is, is actually rather cruel. And it it may in fact be, hope may actually be a very efficient way to enforce uh, individual guilt. So the question, if we're gonna talk about hope, goes back to a very old story uh, and this is one I, I, I stumbled into, again, recently uh, in reading to my daughter. So this is the story, of course, of Pandora and her pithos, or jar, or as we uh, call it now, box. Uh, so Pandora's box was a, a jar filled with gifts from the gods, although the the terms of <laughs> these gifts are a little ambiguous. Pandora herself uh, was called the the all the all bestowed or all given. She you know Pandora means all the gifts because the, uh, all of the gifts all of the gods collaborated on her composition and, and and endowed her with with many graces, many desirable and admirable qualities. Though they also made her Foolish and, uh, and possibly deceitful. They then this was this was in answer to Prometheus having you know Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. This was a a severe primal offense and it needed to be punished. So Zeus, the punishment Zeus devised was to create this shining, dazzling, uh, remarkable woman named Pandora, and to to shower her with personal gifts from, uh, from all the gods, but then also to give her this jar filled with a different kind of gift, perhaps. Uh, they then gave her, she was herself a gift, they gave her to Epimetheus, Prometheus' brother. Prometheus, of course, meaning uh, forethought and Epimetheus meaning afterthought. Uh, Epimetheus took her as his bride, was very happy, to see her, she was uh, supposedly she was the first woman, so this was this was an exciting new development for him. And she wasted no time in doing exactly what she was designed to do, which is to say, opening the jar. She she opened the jar, and as we all know, some problems followed. So this is I'm going to read from the the, the conventionally I think the the oldest known surviving version of this is from Hesiod's Works and Days. I'm just gonna read this little passage from A. E. Stallings, somewhat recent translation of the Works and Days. She's uh, as always a delightful writer and commenter. Her her notes and her introduction are just as fun to read as the poem itself. So uh, this is, uh, Pandora has arrived and uh, lid or jar in hand uh, at Epimetheus house And here is what happened. But woman grappled off the jar's huge lid, scattering its contents as she did, unleashing sorry troubles on mankind. Hope only did not fly. She stayed behind in her impregnable home beneath the lip of the jar. Before she had a chance to slip out, woman closed the lid as Zeus designed. More ills galore go roving through mankind. The sea is full of bane, the earth of blight. Some ailments come by day and some by night. Bringing men ills, they roam of their own choice in silence since Zeus robbed them of their voice. No getting round it, Zeus's schemes prevail. So Zeus sent a jar full of curses and pandora unleashed them on the world she snapped the jar shut again or perhaps the last item in the jar didn't fly out of its own accord it's a little unclear here uh, and i don't have greek so apologies right now for everything that follows to uh, alicia as well as aaron pachicki and chris childers uh, ryan wilson and any other uh, classicists who might hear this episode and grind your teeth in frustration at my ignorance. My apologies. But uh, there, there is some ambiguity about exactly what happened. But what seems to have happened is that there was a jar full of curses. Pandora opened uh, opened it up, let them out on the world. From then on, man, mankind's life was much worse as a result. But hope lingered in the jar. And so hope was a kind of a balm or salve for all of these Evils Now immediately, and I think even a child uh, can see this, there's a sort of a problem here. There's a paradox here just in the text itself. Because if these curses flew out into the world and that is how they came to afflict mankind, then what does it mean that hope remained in the jar? Are we meant to think that we, so hope did not get out? Did did hope stick around, and then you know, did Pandora and Epimetheus and Prometheus apply hope in some way that uh, that made it more deliberate? Why why what was hope doing in this jar to begin with, and why do the rules for how she gets applied to human life differ so much from the rules for how all of these evils and afflictions get applied to, to human life? What's there? There is a there is a kind of a a problem. And uh, just out of curiosity, I, I asked my wife, Joanna, what her memory of the story was. And, and she recounted a very similar version of it, but, but she had a, a slight uh, revision that I thought sort of resolved the problem, right? She said that uh, all of these evils escaped from the jar, of course, but then hope was the last item to escape. So uh, hope did not remain in the jar in Joanna's version, but escaped along with the rest of its contents, and uh, and was simply the one kind was the the one was the one ameliorating influence uh, included. Everything else was a, a trial or a torment, and uh, hope was what made these all. So that, that made a little more sense. I, I, I went to a few different versions. I looked some of this up. Again, my uh, Greek is limited, or not limited. My Greek is non-existent and my research skills are limited. Uh, it does look like the word for hope in Hesiod is elpis or something like this, elpis. And, and it seems to mean hope or maybe expectation sometimes. So sometimes, you know, it, it's possible that it doesn't have the same connotation exactly that hope does. In English. It also seems that there have been a number of variations and revisions of this particular moment in the Pandora story. Uh, in some versions it seems, well here I um, I found a few and I'll read them because I think they, they represent a little bit of the variety. So in uh, Bullfinch's mythology, Thomas Bullfinch offers a couple of versions. Right, he he offers um, the one I just he offers one very similar to Hesiod's, right, uh, like the one I just recounted. But then he follows up uh, that account with this paragraph: Another story is that Pandora was sent in good faith by Jupiter to bless man; that she was furnished with a box containing her marriage presents, into which every god had put some blessing. She opened the box incautiously and the blessings all escaped. Hope only accepted. This story seems more probable than the former for how could hope so precious a jewel as it is have been kept in a jar full of all manner of evils as in the former statement. So the, you know, that, that does seem to make a little bit of sense that the, the jar was filled with blessings and and they, the blessings all escaped, and so when hope remained behind, that 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 accounts for why hope is you know hope is a a, a balm that we have access to, whereas all of these others disappeared. Now, there are still problems with this version. It, it seems to be not a very good just so story. Because the, the problem isn't that we don't have blessings other than hope. The problem isn't that hope is the only good thing in our lives. There are lots of blessings. There are lots of good things in our lives. The problem is that there are also all of these maladies. So it, it doesn't really seem to be accounting for the world as we experience it. Uh, so I found another, a couple other versions in Robert Graves' collection of Greek myths. He, he, he provides one version, interestingly, in which Epimetheus acts with uh, the advantage of forethought. The Prometheus warns Epimetheus not to accept any gifts from Zeus. And so when Zeus offers Pandora to Epimetheus in one version, Epimetheus refuses her. And it is Zeus's fury and having been uh, outfoxed the, that uh, inspires him to chain Prometheus to that rock and send the eagle to tear out his liver every day. So in, in uh, another version, the, those events happen in reverse order. So um, here's, here's uh, a, another alternate version from Robert Graves. This is from his um, uh, collection of the, the Greek myths. Epimetheus, alarmed by his brother's fate, hastened to marry Pandora, whom Zeus had made as foolish, mischievous, and idle as she was beautiful. The first of a long line of such women. I think that's Graves' uh, um, editorial. Presently, she opened a jar, which Prometheus had warned Epimetheus to keep closed, and in which he had been at pains to imprison all the spites that might plague mankind, such as old age, labor, sickness, insanity, vice, and passion. Out these flew in a cloud, stung Epimetheus and Pandora in every part of their bodies, and then attacked the race of mortals. Delusive Hope, however, whom Prometheus had also shut in the jar, discouraged them by her lies from a general suicide." So this is this seems to be there. There are there are some versions in which the jar belongs not to the gods but to originally belonged to the brothers Epimetheus uh, and Prometheus, and it, it, in some cases at least it it seems to have held all of the elements that they they abstained from assigning to mankind when they were making the race of men. So. Uh, It's a a jar of leftovers that Pandora releases. Um, In this case, um, as with Joanna's version, hope does escape the jar, but it's delusive hope, and its purpose is to keep men from uh, killing themselves. Because if they had all of these other afflictions and no hope, then life would be unbearable. The Graves version does present a a coherent and basically complete account of the Pandora story. Like Joanna's version, it does resolve that, that basic paradox. But you know, if it has a shortcoming, it's that it, it simply gives up the detail that Pandora held back or, or recaptured the final contents of the jar, the final element, gift or curse. And that doesn't feel like just a an indulgence of Hesiod, it does seem sort of like a, an essentially Greek motif that uh, the Greek the Greek gods traditionally they they can't undo each other's actions they can't even undo their own actions once they've you know committed to a course but they can modify them and a lot of the stories have that sort of you know, mid narrative revision in them so that. Hera, in a rage, strikes Tiresias blind, but Zeus, in sympathy with him, uh, gives him foresight. Apollo grants Cassandra the ability to uh, foretell future events, but when she refuses his advances, he curses her with the addendum that no one will believe her. So that little detail that Pandora catches that last element, that does feel like a part of the fun of the story and the Graves version simply shrugs it off, ignores it. And so in that way, it doesn't feel totally satisfactory. You know, there are are a number of minor variations on, on these accounts, um, some in which the contents are good, some in which the contents are evil, some in which hope escapes, some in which it doesn't escape, some in which hope itself is uh, an evil. But it wasn't until I read this little cheapo paperback version that my daughter won in a little library contest, it wasn't until I read this version to her uh, at bedtime one evening that I, I Felt I felt the paradox of the story in some way resolved. That this seemed to be the only version I had ever read that handled that wrinkle of hope in a way that seemed really elegant and also true to life. So this is, funnily enough, the Bernard Evslin version of the story. This is from the book, The Greek Gods. It's a children's book that Bernard Evslyn wrote with his wife, Dorothy Evslyn and Ned Hoops or Hoopies. I don't know. Pronunciation doesn't matter. Uh, so this is, a, this is a, you know, a, a book for children, a collection of, of the Greek myths. And um, I'm going I'm to read a slightly longer passage from this this is the end of their account of the pandora story and i think it's i think it's really again it just it it, it threads the needle it unravels this knot in a way that i was really impressed by again uh, for those of you who, who are classicists it, there may be an obvious source for this particular interpretation i just have not been able to find it anywhere else Uh, at least not in such elegant terms. So Pandora, There was a swarming, a hot throbbing, a wild, meaty rustling, and a foul smell. Out of the box, as she held it up in the moonlight, swarmed small, scaly, lizard-like creatures with bat wings and burning red eyes they flew out of the box circled her head once clapping their wings and screaming thin little jeering screams and then flew off into the night hissing and cackling then half fainting sinking to her knees pandora with her last bit of strength clutched the box and slammed down the lid catching the last little monster just as it had was just as it was wriggling free it shrieked and spat And clawed her hand, but she thrust it back into the box and locked it in. Then she dropped the box and fainted away. What were those deathly creatures that flew out of the golden box? They were the ills that beset mankind, the spites, disease in its thousand shapes, old age, famine, insanity, and all their foul kin. After they flew out of the box, they scattered, flew into every home, and swung from the rafters, waiting. And when their time comes, they fly and sting, and bring pain and sorrow and death. At that, things could have been much worse. For the creature that Pandora shut into the box was the most dangerous of all. It was foreboding, the final spite. If it had flown free, everyone in the world would have been told exactly what misfortune was to happen every day of his life. No hope would have been possible. And so there would have been an end to man. For though he can bear endless trouble, he cannot live with no hope at all. The last item in Pandora's box was not hope, but foreboding. Another word for this might be foreknowledge. That is, the final curse was a perfect knowledge of all of the evil that was to come. Hope remained with mankind, not because Pandora caught it in the jar, not because the gods threw it in along with the other, along with curses as a sort of a balm, but because Pandora snagged the final curse and held it back. The final curse being the foreknowledge that would have dissolved all hope. That, that version strikes home. That version seems both self-consistent and uh, true to life. In this version, I think we see the real problem with, with description and prescription. If your goal is uh, helping mankind, doing good, then of course hope is necessary. You cannot live without hope. But if your job is to describe the way things are, then hope is almost necessarily a distortion. I mean, this is, I think, the problem that hamstrung uh, public health experts in the last year and a half. They, they, they got them constantly second-guessing themselves because they got caught up between description and prescription and ended up uh, failing at both very often. Hope as a prescriptivist is crucial. As a descriptivist, hope is not a possible future. Hope is not a possibility at all. Hope is merely and literally applied ignorance. If we were free of hope, we couldn't live. But if we were free of hope, maybe we would at least be able to forgive ourselves for failing. A couple years ago, I did an interview for Literary Matters with the novelist J.P. Gritton uh, on the publication of his his first book, Wyoming. And I I, I always hate those interviews that you get in literary magazines where it's clearly been conducted by email, either by sort of slow correspondence or even worse, when the interviewer just sends a list of questions to the to the interview subject i i just find them really dreary reading because they don't have any of the 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 agility or the surprise or charm of a, a live conversation and i also feel like they're they're sort of awful for the writer because they they end up really just being kind of like homework like it always reminds me of those those awful lists of uh short essay questions you'd get at the end of a chapter of social studies in middle school just the worst so i i didn't want to do that kind of interview and i had the good fortune of of being able to, to um sit down with uh, jp gritton in person and uh so i just recorded it i just had a conversation with him and recorded it and then transcribed it it took a little while but it wasn't too Bad. that that conversation was an early inspiration for for doing this podcast because it was it was so fun and it seemed uh, so much more lively and engrossing both for me and you know with any luck for you than one of these uh, essay test interviews. So at any rate, one of the things we talked about in that interview was the question of wish fulfillment in modern fiction this uh, question was prompted by of all people the meddlesome Brian Platzer of previous episode fame uh, so the 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 question really was just you know whether books or novels specifically that indulge in something like wish fulfillment for the target readership are are more successful or or if if that's kind of if in order to be a if we're, in order to have popular appeal, you know, the, the suggestion was, well, maybe a book really needs to offer this sort of fantasy to the reader. Um, in that conversation, I don't remember if it made it into the final edited version, but we did talk a little bit about Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad, which is a, a terrific book and a, a really gripping read. Uh, but it, it does, against the odds, sort of managed to pull off a, an unlikely kind of wish fulfillment in the middle of hell, whereby the protagonist, who of course, goes through just unspeakable suffering in, in you know, real and fantastical and uh, you know only, only slightly surreal uh, antebellum, America, uh, she she does manage to escape and even to begin to build a sort of a life as a as a you know an independent citizen and she even gets to the sort of the personal gratification of of killing the uh, the man who has been trying to to hunt her down you know it does despite being a really you know almost a horror novel it does have a kind of happy ending so to speak. And, you know, I I first read Colson Whitehead in college and I I really was impressed by his first book, The Intuitionist. Uh, It's been too many years now for me to speak in any detail about it, but but it did, it's a really brilliant, I think he wrote a, I think he actually wrote an essay at some point about the, you know, kind of a a satirical essay about the different kinds of debut novels and he, he called his, uh he he copped to writing uh, I think a, a postmodern allegory, which is sort of what the intuitionist is, though it, it also seems to, you know, very much to owe a, a, a debt to Invisible Man and uh and to James Weldon Johnson's underread uh autobiography of Next Colored Man. But so th- that was a that was a great book, but I you know I I hadn't read him for a little while. I came back and read The Underground Railroad, read The Nickel Boys, which is also really good. Actually, maybe even Harder to read than the Underground Railroad because it, I think it it's much closer to our reality today than than the, uh, its predecessor. Um, but that book also managed sort of to pull off a certain kind of wish fulfillment with a twist because this was really the question that I had for J.P. that that he and I both wrestled with was you know is it possible to provide something like wish fulfillment? In a novel, while also remaining true to, you know, what to felt reality, to, fe- to a felt understanding of life as we know it, which which tends not to be uh, very much like a fantasy or a Freudian dream, and uh, you know, part of how Whitehead does it in that book is by having, uh, by the way, I'm just spoiling uh, willy nilly here. So if you are the sort of person who believes that books can be spoiled, then you should probably stop listening now. At any rate, you know, The Nickel Boys is is another kind of escape narrative like The Underground Railroad, but it is one in which the, the protagonist, as we understand him throughout the book, because it, it skips back and forth between the, the present and the past, um, when the when the protagonist was a, was a boy trying to escape from this you know, horrifically abusive uh, reform school, uh, what, what you know the, the way he pulls off the the wish fulfillment, that is not wish fulfillment, is by having the the, the main character as we understand him as we, you know, the, the same guy we believe has escaped and escaped decades ago, We see him get shot and killed as a boy on his way out of the camp and it's only then that we realized that it was his friend who did escape and who took his name in to you know to honor his dead friend. and then that's the person we've been following in the present day. So that was I think a, a, a clever trick. but uh, you know while I was in the long dark winter uh, before people started really getting vaccinated, i I happened on, not even an article. I, I literally I just read the headline of this this article in Electric Literature, and it it convinced me to go back and read one of Whitehead's books that I had missed. Uh, so this I'm going to read you the headline, and it, I'll say I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes because it is it's a, it's a it's a it's a good article. But you know to be honest, the headline is is be, is the best part about it you, you know i i went back after i read the book and i read the headline and it, it's i, I read the, the article it's a fine article but the headline is is by far the best part so this is in electric literature this is as the pandemic drags on zone one warns us not to hope zone one is the name of colson whitehead's 2011 pandemic novel So once again, as the pandemic drags on, Zone One warns us not to hope. And this is by Matt Matros in Electric Literature uh, in January of 2021. So I I, I saw that, I ordered Zone One uh, and I read it very quickly. It's It's a really speedy, engrossing, totally entertaining read. I mean, it is grim, but it is very entertaining. Uh, I, I actually think it's one of his better books, uh, and and I think wonderfully it also cuts the the Gordian knot of wish fulfillment in a different way, in in a whole different way than than his other books do, uh, or at least uh, these you know these these are the the four I've read. I know he has he's just a a, um, a maddeningly prolific writer. <laughs> Uh, But so I I wanted to just say a word about Zone 1 because I think uh, what Matt Matros gets right is that this is a book that is in in many ways uh, written against hope, uh, as a protest against hope. Um, So Zone 1 is a zombie novel, but unlike most zombie uh, narratives, it doesn't take place in the immediate uh, chaos of of an outbreak of this zombie plague. It takes place, you know, a year or two out after most of the initial bloodshed has passed and the uh, forms and structures and authority of the U.S. military and the U.S. government have begun to reassert themselves. And even some, you know, the beginnings of a global uh, community of nations have begun to make a a claim for, for this new world. So zone one, the title of the book, refers to a, a section of Manhattan. And this is a section that has been been you know, forcibly walled off and initially cleared out by, by shock troops, uh, Marines who went through just blowing away zombies. And the goal is that they, they have designated this as the first sort of clear zone of the, the new New York. It is, as New York is today, just uh, the, the population density is insane. And so even after the Marines have gone through and swept through the streets and killed all of the roving zombies, there are still countless zombies, or in this book, they're referred to as scales. Uh There's still just countless scales, uh trapped in the various buildings. And so little teams have to go through you know building by building floor by floor room by room to actually to clear all of these blocks and and that's the main action of the novel but along the way of course we we also get a lot of snapshots and and flashbacks of the the world before or the period in between so it is um it's a book that presents an interesting challenge or the you know the wish fulfillment problem or an interesting context in which to try to solve that problem but it also i think is a book that the the framework of which really serves whitehead's strengths because he is he's just a a really masterful storyteller or master lee i think i read you're supposed to say master lee is more accurate i'm not sure Uh, but he he does have great mastery of storytelling and he is—he's uh, um, very good at plotting. He plots in a way that feels, you know, both muscular and pretty, pretty organic. He doesn't mind indulging in, a, you know, an occasional lyric passage, even at some length that doesn't necessarily advance the action. But you know, he doesn't—he never lets things go slack. He is a—he's—he's uh, a—he's a really wonderful host as a storyteller. He's very welcoming to the reader. Uh, and I think his his big flaw is really, it's the, it's the only major flaw I've been able to identify in his novels is his management of tense, or, or really not tense because that sounds grammatical, so much as uh, time. That he he does seem, he tends to write in what, I, I in the class I took with Reg McKnight, um, Reg used to refer, refer to something uh, he would call half scene, which is not exposition, but also not scene. It's something like what uh, you might call the imperfect tense. You know, we would do this, and we were, you know, at this time, we were, this was the sort of place we would go, and these were the people we would talk to, and often on Sundays, we would go, you know, we would uh, have this for breakfast. That tense, which is a very it, it's a it is a it's a tense that moves quickly and can include much and it's so it's a handy tense that's one that Whitehead leans on really heavily, so heavily that in some books it can become sort of hard to tell when you are because so much of the book takes place in these big swimming passages of half scene that, that slip back and forth. Over the course of the you know the the book's larger chronology, in Zone One, he is both forced by the immediacy of fucking zombie combat. He's forced to lock himself into immediate scenes that, that you know have a, a specificity and a, you know a concrete uh, linear progression that is that is you know satisfying as an audience as a reader. Uh, but then he's also allowed because there's so much hurry up and wait, there's so much stillness and emptiness in this post-apocalyptic landscape that it is natural for the past to come swimming in, especially because so much of the past world has been annihilated. So the premise of the book both provides a a kind of a brace to strengthen some of his his weaknesses as a writer while also allowing his natural tendencies to really to serve the story uh, to the to the best, in the best way. I, I will also say just briefly that, you know, he's... I, reading Nickel Boys in particular. So he had he pulled off the feet of, you know, the two Pulitzer, uh, two Pulitzers in a row for not, you know, uh, not two years in a row, but two novels in a row. Uh, his last two novels both won the Pulitzer. And especially for the most recent book, it's a terrific book but I wanted to fucking shoot his editor. I mean, just disgraceful, really, really unacceptable work. Because I think, you know, you know, if you are at this point, if you are his agent or his editor, my guess is that what they published is pretty damn close to the first thing he turned in. Because, you know, he's a capable enough, uh, you know, he, is, he is enough of a master And he has enough of somebody who clearly sort of follows his own uh, whims and interests as a reader and a writer that he doesn't need a lot of direction. He doesn't need a lot of guidance as a writer. So my guess is that he basically turns in nearly impeccable copy and then his agent and his editor just pass it along to to the press. That's the impression I get because there were a, there were a number of just very easy dumb little mistakes that got left in for no reason, just no no reason at all, except that somebody didn't bother to fix them, and that you know it's it's because he is so successful and so good that that it didn't really matter you know they knew that it was going to be so good and so clean that it would both be critically acclaimed and commercially successful and so it, you know there was really no incentive for them except you know perhaps for an artistic incentive to do their fucking jobs but in zone one in particular yeah, i want to um just after after that rant i want to i want to cleanse your palate and mine by just reading uh just one of his marvelous paragraphs from zone one so the the part of the Pleasure of this book is that the protagonist, who, who goes by Mark Spitz, Mark Spitz, being uh, the famous Olympic swimmer, who until Michael Phelps broke his record, was the I believe uh, was the the the, Olympi- the the Olympian who had um, won the most individual gold medals in uh, in history, I, I think, um, and for swimming. The, the 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 protagonist is is given the name Mark Spitz by his companions for sort of ironic reasons you know he goes into it at some point but he describes himself as basically a a, a middle class mediocrity he was somebody who always knew how to get by and really you know in the in the chaos of the zombie apocalypse it wasn't being a, a huge badass or being a doomsday prepper that saved him, it was just being a sort of a weaselly survivor. So he has this wonderful paragraph here in which you get, I think, a really good sense both of Whitehead's sort of swimmy sense of time, as well as his his wonderful command of, of story, story as told by backstory, because that's really what it is. And now that I think of it, so much of his novels, so much of all of his novels that I've read are, our story revealed by backstory, and he just does it so convincingly that it, it's hard to it's hard to argue with him. So he, uh, the Mark Spitz is camping out in an, in a, an abandoned, I think it's an abandoned office building at this place, uh, place at this point with his with the rest of his team. He's got a sleeping bag, so this is the, he's he's lying down for the night and sort of he ends up reflecting on the. On, on the past. And again, the skells that he refers to, a skell is, is the word used in this book for zombie. Zombie appears, I don't think it appears anywhere in the book. This is a little bit of a long passage, but it's it's just too much fucking fun. So here here we are. The sleeping bag was comfortable enough on the teal carpet squares, but he missed sleeping in the trees entwined in the branches like a kite. In the woods, bordering the dead subdivisions, in a public park going native according to primeval inclination, levitating over koi in the acupuncturist's backyard garden. In those early days, he roved from empty house to empty house like the other isolates, making it up as he went along. He cased the abode in advance of night, selected his entry point, and then swept the ranch house or split level or other locally popular construction room by room. He checked the basements, the closets, the dryer, you never know, made test noises to draw out any skulls inside, but not loud enough to alert a pack cruising outside. He discovered plague-stricken unfortunates who had been locked away in attics, like the photo albums of bad weddings, and came upon leaking wretches handcuffed to bedposts by fluffy erotic handcuffs. He put down any skell or skells who emerged from the den or romper room, and he made a hasty retreat if it got too hot, taking the pile-covered stairs two at a time or vaulting out the window, the inevitable window, landing messily on the patio set. He knew when it was time to split. It clicked in his brain, the same way he'd known which desk to choose in a new classroom on the first day of a fresh school year the one that would place him in a zone that reduced the chances of being called on amid a high concentration of smart kids and inveterate hand raisers, but at a distinct and quirky angle to the teacher's vision that enabled Mark Spitz to pop in and out of his or her attention. The same way he knew exactly how late he could roll into work without it becoming an issue. How often he could pull off this feat and how busy he had to appear at different times of the day according to his bosses scofflaw seeking trawls through the cubicles. He would always known when to say, I love you, to keep the girlfriends cool and purring. How much to push a deadline without repercussion. How to smile at the representatives of the service industry so that he got a decent table or extra whip. In his mind, the business of existence was about minimizing consequences. The plague had raised the stakes, but he had been in training for this his whole life. So uh, this is a, God, he's he's it's, it's just such a winning writer. So one of the, the uh, little strokes of genius that, that Whitehead has, that again, that really does prefigure some of what we've gone through in the last year and a half, is that this is a world, interestingly, in which, you know, the the zombies kill uh, just a catastrophic portion of the population. So so anybody who is alive, literally the entire living population of the world at the time that the novel takes place, has, among other things, really severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Necessarily. Everybody has been deeply traumatized. So literally every character is mentally ill (laughs) in different ways. And it's just sort of something that everyone understands that everyone has a sort of funny tics, funny little uh, glitches in their personality, in their um, mood, in their affect, in their um, manner, their behavior, or their perception. For Mark Spitz, it's very simple, but it is relentless. He sees ash. He sees ash everywhere. Now one of the um as civilization has begun to reassert itself, of course, one of the things that the the new world order has has you know has had to uh achieve, has had to pull off, is mass incineration of corpses. And so uh, this is something Mark Spitz sees. Because it's literally there, but then he also sees it inside. He sees it at times when the incinerators might not be running. He sees it everywhere at all times. He sees it settling on his MRE as he's sitting in a dining room. He sees it in the in in the the office where they're camping out. Uh, it's it's everywhere, and for Spitz, there is a. So one of the things that the article that I mentioned did uh, point to is that that Spitz stands apart from his his co-workers, I guess, his co-workers in Clearing Out Zone 1, in that he refuses to indulge in any speculation about the world to come. He doesn't imagine what it will be like next he doesn't imagine the new world he doesn't look forward to the new world he doesn't uh, hope for or anticipate or fantasize about the new world and as much as possible he tries not to think about the old world Uh, this is partly just a matter of survival but it's also because you know as we as we see he he finds that it was really in the horror of having everything fall apart and having his tendency to minimize consequences put to this absolute test. It was in running, in sleeping in trees, in you know hiding out in toy stores to avoid zombie throngs. It was in all of these uh, sort of rat-like tactics of survival that he really found himself. That he really became the truest version of who he could be. And so what is So because the book is told in this you know it's a told over the course of maybe 3 days but we do keep dipping back into the past. There's a pretty you know pretty early on in the book you begin to get a sense that something terrible is happening. And and it's it's really toward the end of the book that it that it becomes explicit that the, the main wall holding back. Because, of, of course, New York is still New York in the apocalypse. And so just as thousands and thousands of people move to New York all the time, now zombies, <laughs> zombie Americans, zombie uh, uh, wannabe stars are uh, tromping their way to New York City night and day even in the apocalypse. And so the the biggest of the walls that holds back the the heaviest wave of uh, of approaching zombies, at at the end of the book, it finally gives. And zone one falls. And it's in that moment when he sees the wall come down and he finds himself coming to life again. You know, he's galvanized. It brings him... Uh, back to an immediate sense of the present, back to an immediate sense of himself, it becomes clear that this has really been, you know, this book is is a is a book not you know not of wish fulfillment but of horror. It's not a dream, but it's a nightmare. The only person for whom this ending is wish fulfillment is Mark Spitz. The ash he's been seeing the whole time, the refusal to fantasize about the future, the sense finally that he was most invested, if anything, in this brutal moment-to-moment mode of survival. That's where he really thrived. That wish, he gets his wish at the end. And so, you know, I think it's a really clever way to get around the problem of providing wish fulfillment to the audience, which undoubtedly makes a book more fun to read. It's, you know, part of why we read a long, plotty book is for the satisfaction of seeing the bad guys get their comeuppance, of seeing the hero achieve his goal, Uh, But, you know, when that means that the world of the book is radically unlike our own, then the the book is going to have a very limited effect on us. We're going to mostly forget about it. Fantasies are a blast to read, but we forget them the very next day because they have no bearing on us. We are not on the hook. But this, I thought, was a really uh, smart way to have uh, for, White, for Whitehead to have his cake and eat it too. There is wish fulfillment, but it is, uh, a, the wish fulfillment is just the consummation of the nightmare. So in planning an episode uh, against hope, I i initially thought that a, a great poem to end on would be The Wanderer, the anonymous Anglo-Saxon lyric from you know, a thousand years ago. Uh, it's one of my very favorite poems. I think it's it's terrific, and and I do think there's a lot to talk about. But then in rereading it, uh I, I just I I saw how long it is again and how dense it is, even when it's sort of translated, so to speak, into modern English. And I just thought that this episode has already gone on for fucking ever. So I, I, th- I think I, I may save The Wanderer for another day and instead uh, just read this short poem that I I stumbled upon a few uh, months ago for the first time. My, my um, in-laws dropped off a bunch of books from my wife's old bedroom. Uh, uh probably a couple of years ago and i just i have you know, gone through slowly some of some of these and i i came to the selected poems of uh, louis mcneese and I'd only read a handful of his poems before but i i came to this one and i i thought this was something special. this is the suicide by louis mcneese. yeah all right so the suicide was originally published in nineteen sixty one. And it appeared in McNeese's collection, The Burning Perch, which was published in 1963. So this is the suicide. And this, ladies and gentlemen, whom I am not, in fact, conducting, was his office all those minutes ago. This man you never heard of. There are the bills in the in-tray, the ash in the ashtray, the gray memoranda stacked against him, the serried ranks of the box files, the packed jury of his unanswered correspondence nodding under the paperweight in the breeze from the window by which he left. And here is the cracked receiver that never got mended, And here is the jotter with his last doodle, which might be his own digestive tract. Ulcer and all. Or might be the flowery maze through which he had wandered deliciously till he stumbled suddenly, finally conscious of all he lacked on a manhole under the hollyhocks. The pencil point had obviously broken. Yet... When he left this room, by cat drop, sleight of foot, or simple vanishing act, to those who knew him for all that mess in the street, this man with a shy smile has left behind something that was intact. It's a short poem. uh, it's only nineteen lines. The, there's not really a you know any kind of regular meter. There's the lines tend to be fairly iambic with it, with a lot of uh, anapests along the way. So there's a sort of a jauntiness to the to the rhythm, and there is a lot of internal rhyme, but most of the lines are not end rhymed properly, um, except for a number of them that return to the same, insistent rhyme so the first line ends with fact the last line ends with intact and along the way we we find there there's line after line that ends with a word that rhymes with this same sound fact stacked packed cracked tracked lacked act intact so that there is uh despite the breeziness Of the narrator, there is this sharp, repeating, unforgettable sound that keeps cutting through all of this banter, or all of this patter, rather. And the tone of the poem, I think, is really part of what makes it so effective. There's, you know, he's irreverent from the get go, and he spends most of his time pointing to things. There's almost something of a blazon about this poem. you know blazon originally had to do with uh, with the heraldic crest and in looking to all of the, uh, the the quotidian items in this man's desk, you know at his, or in his office at work, uh, we see the evidence of his life. Um, but we do return again and again to this final act both in sound and in substance. Uh, I do think that if there's, it is a really cinematic effect that McNeese pulls off when he shows us the, the correspondence nodding under the paperweight in the breeze line break from the window by which he left, really, really <laughs> withholding that last crucial piece of information until the, the end of that clause uh, I think we we have a pretty sharp shock there. and then I, I think if 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 there's a maybe one line we could do without in the poem or I could do without it's probably a cat drop sleight of foot or simple vanishing act uh right toward the end because you know we we sort of already seen that trick with the earlier line about the you know the breeze uh, from the window by which he left and because I think sleight of foot is is maybe just, a little cuter than it is actually funny, and Simple Vanishing Act seems um, unnecessary, except that it's been a few lines since we've heard that sound act, and it's nice to get another one in there before the end. But otherwise, I think we could probably go directly from the pencil point had obviously broken yet when he left this room, to those who knew him for all that mess in the street, This man with a shy smile has left behind something that was intact. Maybe maybe not. Maybe we need something there because we need some sense that he's not leaving to those people. But yeah, I don't know. That that line, I trip a little bit over that line. Though maybe that's all right. Maybe I I should trip on it. And I I also appreciate, you know, I think, of course, of that criticism from A.M. Juster that I mentioned uh, several episodes ago of poems that celebrate Romanticize a suicide, and I think that uh, though this is a a moving poem, I don't think it romanticizes the suicide itself. You know, there's a there's a great deal of physical specificity in the poem, so that by the time we get to the the condition of the man's body itself. McNeese has really done a lot of preparatory work and showing us the window, showing us all of these particular items, showing us the broken pencil point, something that fine. When we get to the man's actual body, all he has to say is, those who knew him for all that mess in the street. It's all we really see of what he has become, but uh, I think it's evocative enough that we don't need to see anymore. It is certainly not romantic, and even the little note of consolation, that he's left something that was intact. It's not the act itself that does that. This is the suggestion that, you know, the pencil is broken, but the doodle is intact. But of course, you know, I I don't think that we are meant to believe that it's really just the doodle that he's referring to. Those who knew him have something of this man, and they already had it. This isn't something he brought about by stepping out the window. It's something that he left behind. Uh, and intact, I think, nicely while, of course, closing out that uh, insistent rhyme, also uh, comes from a, a Latin for touch. Intact, there is some way in which, uh, despite having really obliterated, I mean, he's he's absent from the room. He is a is a physical non-entity in the room, a palpable one, but he's also just utterly obliterated his body. I mean, he's reduced it to a mess rather than the form of a person. And yet there is still this way in which he has left his touch. He has touched these people and, and it will stay. Something will stay, which I think is a kind of comfort that doesn't indulge in hope which is maybe all uh, we can hope for some days. I'm going to read this one more time, because it's a short one, and then I will uh, sign off. So this is The Suicide by Louis McNeese. And this, ladies and gentlemen, whom I am not, in fact, conducting, was his office all those minutes ago, this man you never heard of. There are the bills in the in-tray, the ash in the ashtray, the gray memoranda stacked against him, the serried ranks of the box files, the packed jury of his unanswered correspondence nodding under the paperweight in the breeze from the window by which he left. And here is the cracked receiver that never got mended. And here is the jotter with his last doodle, which might be his own digestive tract, ulcer and all, or might be the flowery maze through which he had wandered deliciously till he stumbled suddenly finally conscious of all he lacked on a manhole under the hollyhocks the pencil point had obviously broken yet when he left this room by cat drop sleight of foot or simple vanishing act to those who knew him for all that mess in the street this man with a shy smile has left behind something that was intact That was The Suicide by Louis McNeese, and this is Slea Ricketts. Thank you so much for listening. You can always reach me at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.